Welcome to the History of Witchcraft. Episode 7. To Kill a King. Welcome back to the History of Witchcraft podcast. Now, first things first, apologies are in order for the lack of episode last week. For those unaware, when I'm not writing podcasts, I'm writing my postgraduate dissertation, and I had a sudden spike in deadlines that I had let sneak up on me. But as the phrase goes, absence makes the heart grow fonder. So I fully expect every single one of you is now madly in love with my voice. It's okay, it happens all the time. Nothing to worry about. Anyway, two weeks ago we covered what actually made up the witch beliefs, focusing on three main topics. The first was the witch's sabbat, where witches gathered to plot their evil deeds, recruit new followers of the devil, and of course, have sex with him. The second was the witch's mark, or teat, a growth or blemish that was often pointed to as foolproof evidence that someone was in league with the devil. The witch's mark was used to identify witches to other witches, as well as to feed their familiars if they had one. The third topic was some of the methods used to establish the truth, other than just run-of-the-mill torture, namely the act of witch-pricking and the trial or ordeal by water. I decided to cover these topics because they are central to many of the witch crazes we have already covered, and will cover in the future, but during my break I realised that all three are central to the topic I've decided to do today. That topic, my handsome and intelligent listeners, is a person, and that person has a name, James Stewart. Now, that is James the Sixth of Scotland to you at least prior to 1603, and from then on he became James VI of Scotland, as well as James I of England and Ireland. Today, however, we will only be talking about James as King of Scotland, since today's episode is only going to be about a small part of his life. I plan to cover the bulk of his life over the next few episodes, partly because James is wholly involved in the pursuit of witches throughout his reign, but also because accusations of witchcraft are inextricably tied to the various uprisings and factions that plagued his rule. Now, while today may be a relatively short episode, I have a good reason, which I promise I will explain at the end of the show. Today, we will exclusively be hearing the romantic tale of James's marriage to Princess Anne of Denmark. And it truly is quite a romantic tale, especially by the standards of the time when marriages were political. Not to say that this union was based on true love, oh goodness no, this was still a royal marriage made for political benefit, but still, it has to be said, James was certainly a gentleman about the whole thing. We begin the tale of James's quest for marriage in 1585. James is 19 years old, a strapping young lad who has had a, shall we say, challenging life. His mother, Mary Queen of Scots, was exiled shortly after he was born, and ever since, young James had been little more than an object passed around by opposing factions. Even after assuming full kingship at the ripe old age of 12, James faced coup after coup, being kidnapped multiple times and facing down rebellions left, right and centre. So when, in 1585, he first sent out feelers to King Frederick II of Denmark about marrying his daughter, 
Elizabeth, it wasn't because he was feeling overly broody. A royal marriage would provide legitimacy to the young king, and in a worst-case scenario, if deposed in one of the endless conspiracies, he would have an ally to grant him refuge and, hopefully, back up a reconquest of his kingdom. We, of course, know that James would keep his throne and even gain another over his lifetime, but in the restless atmosphere of early modern Scotland, there was no certainty that this would be the case. Now, eagle-eared listeners may have picked up that I said James was negotiating with King Frederick about marrying Elizabeth, and thought, hang on a second there, you said this was a romantic tale about his marriage to Anne. Well, that's kind of a spoiler, sorry about that. At this point, James was going after Frederick's eldest daughter, but those negotiations fell through. He would try again for Elizabeth's hand, and presumably the rest of her, in 1587, but those negotiations would fail too. Elizabeth would eventually be married off to the Duke of Brunswick Lundberg instead, with King Frederick promising the Scottish king his second daughter Anne, stating, quote, If the king did like her, he should have her, end quote. Which is rather lovely, good old dad. In the end, in June of 1589, the Earl Marischal, George Keith, would be sent as an ambassador to the Danish court to once and for all sort out whether James would marry a Danish princess. Marischal seems to have found the 14-year-old acceptable, and after receiving the agreement of Anne's mother, Queen Dowager Sophie, as Frederick had died in 1588, and the now King Christian IV was not even a teenager, he took part in a proxy marriage between himself, standing in for King James, and Anne in August 1588. News of the proxy marriage reached James towards the end of August, and everyone expected the young queen to arrive in Scotland by the end of September. Now, so far, this all seems fairly standard for an early modern marriage, but this is all about to change. The royal fleet set sail from Copenhagen on the 1st of September, but almost immediately runs into problems. The flagship develops a serious leak, and storms buffet the ship until the Admiral takes refuge on the coast of Norway on the 10th of September. James, who had been waiting for two weeks at Port Seaton, just up the coast from Edinburgh, received word of the fleet's troubles, but was promised that the voyage would continue in the next few days. Which it did! Only for the storms to return, forcing the ships back to Norway. On the 10th of October, James received a letter from his new wife, lamenting that the voyage would have to be abandoned until the spring, and that she would winter in Oslo. Now, it would be perfectly acceptable, indeed expected, for James to leave it at that, He had a kingdom to rule, after all, and Anne seemed safe enough in Oslo. Come spring, she would continue her voyage and would be with him soon enough. Of course, this is where James's romantic side got the better of him. That or impatience, who knows. By the 22nd of October, James had made arrangements for his absence, and he set sail from Leith with a 300-strong retinue and a fleet of his own. He would not see Scotland again until May the following year, and he left knowing he would be gone for some time. Now, considering his reign up to this point, James was either supremely confident that his government was secure enough to handle his absence, or he was head over heels in love with Anne, and believed that she was worth risking his kingdom over. Maybe it was a bit of both. Less than a week later, despite the best efforts of the storm, James reached the coast of Norway, and in November 1588, James and Anne got married in person. The Scottish account presents James as rushing straight off the boat in his travelling clothes, sweeping Anne off her feet and kissing her, quote, 
in the Scottish fashion. End quote. Oh, how lovely. Anne was apparently not impressed by this, as it wasn't the Danish way, but whatever, he's sailed across an ocean for you. However, the Danish version of events has James follow all the diplomatic niceties announced by heralds surrounded by his retinue and in ceremonial dress. I leave it up to you to choose your preferred story. The newlyweds enjoyed a month in Oslo before boarding their combined fleets and setting sail for Anne's native Denmark, which they reached in the new year. Apparently, having enjoyed it so much the first time around, the two monarchs had another wedding ceremony in Kronborg, and they stayed in Denmark until April. During this time, James, of course, spent some time with his new in-laws, Queen Sophie, young King Christian, and Christian's four regents. They also attended the marriage of Elizabeth to the Duke of Brunswick, which must have been something of an experience for both James and Anne. When they again set sail, they again suffered intense storms, but managed to power through until they arrived back at Leith on the 1st of May. Anne was crowned in the chapel of Holyrood Palace in the first Protestant coronation in Scottish history on the 17th of May, 1590, only nine months after she was first proxy married. Now, I'm sure you agree, this is a lovely story, but what on earth does any of this have to do with witchcraft? Well, dear listeners, it has everything to do with witchcraft. Why do you think those storms kept striking just as the royal couples tried to sail? And the leaky flagship? Whew. Now, while we might put such events down to shoddy construction and a captain who hadn't listened to the shipping forecast, the denizens of Denmark were more inclined to lay the blame on witchcraft. Denmark had had its fair share of witch hunts over the previous decades, and belief in witches was as strong there as anywhere on the continent. While James was staying in Denmark with his in-laws, he made a visit to Niels Hemmingsen, a Lutheran theologian who had written an influential text on witchcraft at his home in Roskilde. In his text, the Admonitio de Superstitionibus Magicus Vitandis, which is something of a mouthful, he attempted to define witchcraft as any superstitious behaviour, also arguing that not only did many witches not have pacts with the devil, but also that many of the more impossible feats claimed by confessed witches, such as riding on a broomstick, for example, were in fact only illusions. James appears to have been heavily influenced by this meeting with Hemmingson, and some scholars have pointed to his visit to Denmark as giving the Scottish king his obsession with witchcraft. Almost immediately after the first setback in Princess Anne's journey, the Admiral of Anne's fleet, a man by the name of Monk, lay the blame for both the storms and his leaky ship on a Copenhagen woman he had insulted. Similarly, when the Danish Minister of Finance was accused of insufficiently preparing the fleet for travel, he claimed the storms were supernatural in origin and therefore no man could adequately protect against them. There are contradictory accounts of what followed. Some sources state that the minister accused a woman called Karen the Weaver of being the mastermind behind the plot, and that she was arrested in July 1590. But others state that the investigation into the storms was complete by July. Whatever the truth, Karen the Weaver, Anne Coldings, Malin, the wife of Copenhagen's mayor, and between three and nine other women were executed for their involvement in the plot to kill the royal couple. News of these trials reached Scotland in July. Whether James was inspired by his Danish counterparts, or by his meeting with Hemmingson, 
or even if he had always intended to pursue witches in his realm, the following years were an orgy of trials, as the supposed conspiracy to kill the king and his new bride was rooted out. We will examine the North Berwick trials, as they would come to be known, in a future episode. But for now, I will bring this episode to an end. Now, this is a much shorter episode than I would normally write, and I am sorry for that, but I have a very good reason. Not just that my academic career is on the line, oh no no no, nothing as boring as that, although it is true. No, the reason today's episode is so short is that my podcast writing time has been taken up with a guest episode for the History of England podcast. I was genuinely honoured to be asked by David to write for his brilliant show, since it was his relaxed, entertaining approach to history that inspired me to start my own podcast. So... If you're listening to this as it's released, go check out David Crowther's History of England podcast this coming Sunday. I will be talking all about Tudor witchcraft beliefs, their laws, religious strife, and the clampdown on superstition. And to borrow a turn of phrase from David, I am like a pig in muck. Probably could have chosen a slightly more flattering phrase in hindsight, but what's done is done. Before I go, a little bit of housekeeping. First, thank you to Nima A for your flattering review on iTunes. It was lovely to see that. For those unaware, iTunes reviews only show up on the reviewer's country store, making it very difficult to track them down. I've signed up to a free service that is meant to inform me when the show gets a review, but it doesn't often do that. So if you've taken the time to leave a review, which is one of the best ways to support the show, I might add, and would like a shout-out, please let me know by email at witchcraftpodcast at gmail.com or on the Facebook page. Secondly, the show is now on Stitcher, which seems to be quite a popular app for podcasts. So, if you've got a friend who enjoys history podcasts, but only uses Stitcher, give them a nudge and let them know about the show. Thank you for listening to this episode of The History of Witchcraft. If you've enjoyed the episode, please consider leaving me a positive review on iTunes, Stitcher, or whichever podcast app you use. You can visit the website at thehistoryofwitchcraft.co.uk, where you will find my contact details if you have any questions. The show also has a Facebook page and a Twitter feed if you want to keep up to date. The intro and outro music have been provided by Sounds Like an Earful. Thank you again for listening.